Providence that I actually had to preach at my Christian fellowship this last Thursday at my college. And, um, and it, was, it was well received there, and um, I hope it, it's just as relevant and practical to us tonight as I just go through it. Um, it, is, it is Jenny's and I's sincerest desire for us to grow with Woodside Community Church. So I'm going to do my best to lovingly share with you guys the blessings and wisdoms that I have received while reading God's Word. Um, more importantly, I want us to be challenged, not on, on Sundays, but throughout our weeks, to, um, to live lives sold out for Jesus Christ, to uh, just love on Him and just know Him better. So tonight we'll be focusing on a small section of James chapter 4. The reason why I chose it being because I have been turning to those passages lately as I struggle, as Matt said, through seminary, through having a baby, through getting married, buying my own place. So all these different struggles that I have, I've been turning to these passages and, and the presumptions that I often have in planning life and often the lack of humility that I have before God in doing so. So with that being said, I, w- I would like to turn to God in prayer before I start. Um, Father God, I thank you for tonight. Lord, remove my nerves, remove anything that I'm thinking in my head, Lord, that doesn't pertain to you, but allow me just to, to, to preach, Lord, what you have given to me through your word, that I just might love and serve you and just share with these people, Lord, what you have given to me. Um, God, just remove myself and allow us to just have attentive ears to, Lord, hear the gospel, Lord, in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So please turn to James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17, and read along as I read aloud. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do fails to do it. For him, it is sin. Well, to get everybody on the same page, um, let's start with our author. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and we know that for a time he was an unbeliever. Actually, for all the years that Jesus was alive, he was an unbeliever, up until the resurrection where he he did come to trust in his brother as Lord, which I find a little bit easier to do once your brother has come back and risen from the dead. And thereafter, he did dedicate his life to the gospel message and actually became the head of some of the churches in Jerusalem at the time. His letter is directed then to an audience of Jewish Christians who were struggling with practical faith. The issues developing were these overreaching statements concerning Paul's teaching on justification and grace. Things like not having to worry too much about commands, tossing out moral law and ethics, not concerning yourself with holiness, and because... Paul's teaching was, we're all saved by grace, right? We don't have to worry about works. So James then took on the endeavor to explain that works exemplify that justification, not that works produce justification, helping us flesh out and point us to a healthy balance of connecting and thinking regarding works and faith. So I'm not going to tackle that tonight, but if you t- it is spoken throughout the book. So if you are interested in reading more about how faith and works mingle together, then James is a great place to start your studies. But for today's purpose, we will we'll skip down to chapter 4, and we come to a section about planning, or more specifically, the process of planning for one's future. However, James, as we will read, is warning his readers about a specific mindset that we're, they were developing at the time concerning these plans. And he uses a dialogue that seemed to be most common among merchants of the time. These merchants are what we would um, equivocate today to uh, 
modern-day entrepreneurs, people who were ready to take a chance, people who were seeking opportunity, and they had calculated all the risks, and they wanted to seize on the moment. So in verse 13, uh, we have their plan. I'll just read it again very quickly. It says, they say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year, or a year there and trade and make a profit. And in that tiny verse, what we learn very quickly is where they will go, how long they will stay, what they will do, and how they will make a profit. And on the surface, to me, this seems pretty practical. It, it looks like a good plan. It looks like something that I myself would even endorse or even get behind. It seems legitimate enough. But in verse 14, we read James saying to them, You say these things, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanish. James just shuts them down at where they are. And he's almost making a jest of mockery at them. Um, you ever think of those cold mornings? Uh, I, I did this when I was a kid. I used to walk outside and pretend I could smoke and just blow the smoke out from my hand. And like that mist would appear for an instant and then completely vanish. That's the kind of shortness that James is getting at here. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Who are you? What is your life? You are, you are but a vapor that appears a little while and then you're gone. That's it. It would seem as if James disapproves of this type of planning. So we continue reading in verse 15. He says, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Well, that to me is a little bit even more confusing. Is James saying that if we wave our magic wand of cliche phrases in front of our plans that God will then get behind them and make them more acceptable? No, I don't think James is saying that. In verse 16, James breaks down his point even further and clarifies it. As it is, or the way you're approaching things now, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Um, Evil here is a pretty strong word. Matt even mentioned it in this morning's sermon, so I'm not going to labor in spelling out that that participating in evil is is a bad thing. Regardless of whatever you think evil might be, this is a very serious offense. Well, what do you and I make of this as readers of it today? Well, you could go, aha, you know, the problem was boasting. The problem was arrogance and the selfish ambitions of these merchants. There's no consideration for God. It's just their plan, their ways in the future, how they saw it. Well, well, good. I don't don't think like that. All my plans have God in mind. Every night before I go to bed, I say, Lord, your will be done. I would never boast in myself. So who is the person who plans and thinks like this? Who is that presumptuous that when they talk about their life, they say these things? Surely, I'm not like this. That's pagan talk. Except James is speaking to a Christian audience. These merchants, if we can label them as something, they were Christian merchants. He is speaking to those who might have given the same exact defense and rationale that I just pointed out right now. These Christian merchants who were representing Christ, the gospel, and God had attitudes that looked exactly like their pagan counterparts. These men who were already pre-celebrating their plan, they were boasting about it, as if God was either going to hop on board and bless them, or their plan was so foolproof that they did not even need God. Either way, this type of boasting is an evil. We often make plans, and unfortunately, we do not do the right thing, which is to humble ourselves and ask God what His will is, We just presume that and even believe that our plan is priority number one to God. But in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How often do we pray before we plan our future? Well, God, I forgot to do that. How often do we inquire and ask godly brothers or sisters, elders or pastors before we pursue our goals? 
Well, Lord, I know better. How many times have we not done what God has called us to do because it derails us from our original plan? You know, mine before yours. Our plan, our glory, our future. How often do we use even the mask of piety for our hopes and plans in place of the direct tug of the spirit or commands God has given us? Sorry. Choices we make, no matter how well crafted with facts, statistics, research, are ultimately left up to the will of God. To be reaching for your future goals at the expense of your present day living is folly. God would call that foolish. And I know many of us try and conjure excuses for ourselves to commit this act of disobedience. Let me give examples that came to my mind. Does this sound familiar? God, once I get out of debt, once I get a perfect job, I will totally give all my time, service, and money to the church. God, I know that church and having fellowship with other Christians is extremely important, but hey, you know how busy I am right now, right? I can't go out and do that. If I can't handle these small, important issues that I have, how can I serve your people well? I would just get in the way. So just give me more time in what I need to do. God, if you would just give me the desire of my heart, that guy, that girl, that job, that car, this body, more power, their approval, I could finally begin to be effective for your kingdom. Don't you want that? Help me now. Help me help you. We make all these plans, expecting God to conform to them without even considering or seeking to understand what God wants in the plan. We are crafty like that, even convincing ourselves that this is not sin and it is not foolish. But God is not fooled. We see our glory, so we circumvent our other responsibilities in order to obtain our best interests. I know I struggle with this. God, the, the plan was to go to seminary. I don't have time to pay down um, my family's debts right now. I don't have time to love my wife, do the dishes, put the toilet seat down, spend time with her, worry about Obamacare, what's the best health coverage for our baby. Lord, I need a clear path. We need to get the ball rolling on this plan. Don't you remember what we were going to do? Shameful and presumptuous is what it is, using my God-given plan to ignore my God-given responsibilities. Friends, we are at the daily at the mercy of God. And, and don't get me wrong, there is real wisdom in planning. Yet there are some of us here who presume that the grace of God is our entitlement. We believe that we are in control, that we are the masters of our own destiny. So we boast in our intelligence and our creativity. We boast in our works. We boast as to make much of ourselves. We are in an age where pride and selfish ambition are celebrated as virtues rather than sin. How God opposes the proud, yet they think, we believe, and are even told by some of our pastors that God is on team me. Our presumption that all plans work out for me, that life's outcome is based on what's best for me, that success and glory are to be had for me. This is a wicked evil. Do not get caught up in your own self-sufficiency. God is not a cosmic genie in the sky to make your life and all your plans work out exactly as you wish and please if you just love, uh, rub the lamp the right way. As Pastor Matt said, this is not Joel Olstein's your best life today. Your plan never trumps God's will. So now that if you probably feel a little bit terrible, let me end the sermon here. <laughs> Recently, I watched a video online. It was called, The Time You Have Left in Jelly Beans. 28,835 jelly beans were weighed and laid out on a black mat. 
This assumes that the average person will live to be about 79. So if we do some basic math, take 29,000 beans, divide by 365, and you're left with about 79 years of life. The video goes on to start subtracting these jelly beans. First, it takes away the, the first 18 years of your life and immediately removes them. And then it starts subtracting things you do throughout your day with your remaining time. It starts removing sleep, the amount of time you will sleep, the amount of days you will work, the time that you go on your commute, how you groom your body, how you um, go to spend time in religious services. And what you're left with is a sliver of these 29,000 beans. And does anyone take a guess of how many beans are left? No, I don't think so. 2,740 beans, which if you do quick math on that, only equivocates to 7.5 years. That's all the time that you have left. And when I watched that video, I found that to be so utterly depressing. So I decided to do my own math, taking that same average, weighed against the years that I had lived, and what I was left with after just subtracting the activity of sleep is 35.5 years. That's all I have. I have 35 years. And I'm not even guaranteed that time the Lord could take me and his will could be for me to, to be with him tomorrow. I do not know those things. But what I do know is if I did have all 35 years of life, that is all I have to love my wife, to raise and love my children, provide for my family, fellowship with others, read and pray, go to church, and lastly and most importantly, to love, know, and share Jesus Christ. That is it. That's our lives. And this is not to be morbid and for all us to go by death watches and start counting down and setting them and, you know, that's, that's not what I was trying to do here. What it was for me was it, was it was sobering, and it is sobering. I felt something when I heard that. Do you feel anything when you put units like that? If you're anything like me, I began to panic. Lord, I, I have to do more. I have things I have to get accomplished to get done. I need, I need to start living life. Then I realized what I was feeling. It was the illusion of control being shattered. Life had been reduced down to me into a unit that I could understand that I could wrap my head around, what it really was, vapor. Then God really started to humble me. I started thinking, I am finite, but he is infinite. I am temporal, he is eternal. I am transient, he is everlasting. I am a mist, but he is forever. The Bible spells it out for us in other ways. God calls us a shadow. He calls us grass that grows for some times and then withers. We are vapor, that our life is a mere hands width. I don't even know what that is. My hands are very tiny, but I'm assuming it's a very small unit. And I have since asked God since then to, to direct my years. Lord, how can I give those years to you? This is not a lot of time, 7.5 years. How many of those days have I already wasted pursuing my vain idols? Plans for the future that were either crushed, changed, or failed? Lord, please forgive me for the time that you have given me to steward for your glory and your kingdom that I've used for myself. Who am I? What is my life that you would even consider me? You and I are, are not promised tomorrow. I nor you can add seconds to our lives, yet we pursue each day with a vanity as if the next day is promised. We don't give the things of God a second thought. We don't give thanks. We oftentimes con continue to sin in the sin of presumption, living for ourselves, planning what we will do, as if God has this nice life insurance policy that we've taken out that's secondary and, back up, and is a backup plan to what we want for ourselves today. 
don't know if you guys noticed, but we put verses on the little bulletin thing outside. And the last verse before we changed it today was Psalms 90.12. So teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The problem we have is within our hearts. The best chance at living life abundantly is to actually turn it over. It is to give it up to the one who loved you enough to purchase it by his blood. That's all we are really doing. We are attempting to live a life abundant when we make our plans, get the most out of it. Essentially, what we are doing is trying to save ourselves. You are attempting to do all that is in your power to create a way to rescue yourself. You cannot. And instead, God tells us to do something that we struggle with daily, and that is to submit ourselves under the care and guidance of a loving creator. See, the solution for your future is to, in fact, secure it. You do need to be saved. You do need to be rescued, but not through your own self-introspection. This security is where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. We need an outside source. Our hope and firm foundation, what allows us to plan accordingly and rightly, what stops us from being a fatalist and freezing up and throwing up our hands in the air and saying, well, what's the point in even trying then, God? It's your will all the time. What stops us from making life all about us and pretending that we have a grasp on the future is to look to something in the past, the cross. It is to behold the worth, beauty, and splendor of Jesus Christ. Christ, in a sovereign plan set forth by God before time began, lovingly humbled himself and came down, and he died in the place of presumptuous sinners. Instead of seeking his own way, in the garden he cried out, Father, let this cup pass. Not my will be done, not my plan, but your will be done. God could have easily chosen the other path, plan B, judgment, condemnation, annihilation. But instead he spared not his own son to accomplish a glorious act of love. He transferred his goodness, his righteousness, his record for our sin-covered lives. What compassion and what kindness mercy, and unmerited favor, favor from our Savior. Friends, if we are a mist that will vanish at dawn, it is so crucial we get this message right. It, it just doesn't get any more important. The gospel is of first importance. Without it, you have the product of a wasted life, a race run in vain, and it is so crucial and important that we trust the message of the good news. Christ in my place, bearing my sin and shame and all my distrust. There is no future without Christ. There is no profit to go out to be made. What does a man gain if he inherits the entire world but forfeits his soul? We are bankrupt without Jesus. And every plan made without him, for us and for you, it might be sin. But the wages of it are death. So how can we respond to a message like this? Well, my points of application, I used, I used three letters. TTT. Tremble, trust, and tell. Number one, we need to tremble. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We ought to tremble at the majesty and power of God. We often construct small idols of God, a small image of Him, and we try to compartmentalize Him into ways that we can think and see Him and perceive. But God is not small. God is bigger and greater than all the words that we could muster to describe Him. His love, in fact, as the hymn puts it, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. To write about it would drain the oceans dry, nor could scroll contain its whole, even if you stretched it from sky to sky. <clears throat> he is the Alpha and Omega, who breathes out stars and upholds the universe by his finger, 
Yet he is also the one who carefully knit you together in the depths of your mother's womb. His voice shakes the foundation of mountains and thunders in the sky, yet whispers to us in our deepest valleys and brings comfort to our souls. We do not fear him or treasure him enough simply because we don't know him enough. To have a fear of the Lord is to have a reverence for him. When you stand at the foot of the Grand Canyon or see the northern lights, you awe. You lose your breath. Or remember that you are actually one borrowed breath away from spending an eternity somewhere. Seek to understand the depths of his character. Pray and seek him. Humble yourself under his word. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, then we do not have time to be arrogant. Let us approach God with humble hearts and minds. This is the same God who wills if you live and who wills if you will do this or that. All is left in his sovereign hands. Learn to tremble with awe and wonder at the control and precision of all that God holds together. Second point is to trust. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious, or as other translations put it, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of his life? Matthew 6, 25 through 27. I didn't come here today to drop anvils on your life's plans and your, your life's directions, and that we should all quit and become monks and sing kumbaya together. No. The path you're on might actually be the right one, where you should be. But I want us to consider God. I am not, and James is not condemning all forms of being pragmatic, of being practical with our lives. However, I want us to trust in God. I want us to have active, growing, robust relationships with our Savior. I want there to be dialogues and a vibrancy of joy when resting in Him alone. I do not want us to attempt to be self-sufficient in order to try to save ourselves. That is a burden only God could undertake. But forget what I want. God wants you to trust Him. He does not want part of your life or the parts that you've decided you need him for. He wants the whole thing. He wants you, your heart, and affections. Trust in God, not because I have told you to, but because of the confidence God has given us by trusting in Christ through the gospel. Take full confidence in knowing that whatever plans you are making, they can rest on Christ solely for fulfillment. Oh, not that your will would be done as you fit see, best see it, but that God is going to get all the glory. Does that reflect your heart and your mind's attitude? That when God gets the glory, that gives you joy and satisfaction? Our lives are not random and left to chance. They are, they are being shaped to reflect the glory of God, to grow us in holiness. In order not to be swayed in times of struggle and confusion, we must trust in Christ and his death and resurrection. To stray away from the gospel message would undoubtedly lead to doubt, pain, worry, and guilt. And as a disclaimer, I, I'm not condoning an attitude of just believe in God and, and rainbows and sunshine and good vibes will fill your days. Christ tells us to consider the cost, and the cost is very real. It demands your entire life. Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, And he said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We all know what the cross is, but you don't think of it like this. That is an instrument of death. Why would you ever want to take up a cross? Well, the verse continues, For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A firm trust in the hope found in the gospel, you will weather the storms of life, and not only your tongue, but your heart will give thanks and glory to God. Here are just some examples from scriptures of the hope that we have when we humble ourselves under God's great care. These are his promises. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but with everything and by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. <clears throat> Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. My last point tonight is to tell. When we begin to commit all things to God and humbly submit our lives to his will and not ours, it frees us then so that we can faithfully move on to telling others about the hope of the gospel. Life is short, and it is so important that we then share this message. Many of you in a room this size I know have friends and family who, who do not know Christ, and we falsely believe that tomorrow is the day that we will go and reach out. Don't wait. By way of a theme this year for my college group, they decided that they wanted to grow in love for God and for one another. They wanted to study love. Well, if that be the case then, then don't tarry. Forgive, share, encourage, pray for one another, counsel one another in God's word, seek to edify. Let life's brevity shape your walk with your creator. Do not just sit on this kind of message. If, if this sermon has done anything by way of encouraging you, please go and share the single most important message that anyone can hear in this life. In fact, one of the most unloving things you can do for someone is to keep silent in the midst of their perishing right before you. Proclaim, be a herald for the gospel. As a church, we need to remind each other of Jesus, to talk about Jesus, let the overflow of our conversations reflect where our treasure is. Our leaders here at Woodside should preach this message continually. How thankful I am that Matthew brings every one of his sermons back to the cross. Our worship team, may the songs that we choose magnify Jesus in the cross. When we sing as a congregation, may the lyrics of the song stir up your affections. May we not be conscious of how we sound to our neighbor and to those around us, but rather just lift up your voices to sing his praises, because he is so worthy of it. To those of us in secular jobs, we have actually one of the biggest opportunities to share our faith. Let your conversations and your work ethic reflect where your treasure is. May all our plans begin and end with a humble attitude of submission and reverence for God. I hope this message has in some way called some of us to action, to challenge our lives, maybe with our future decisions or plans that you're in the process of struggling with right now. I hope the message has encouraged some of you to humble yourself, to, to seek first the counsel of God by prayer and petition. For others, I hope this was a wake-up call that you need to fall before God and seek repentance and deliverance for plans or lives that may have never been committed to Him in the first place. Perhaps someone has even fooled you into thinking that God is all about you and your prosperity. But above all, I pray this message would be a reminder to everyone, a constant thorn in your side, to run and cling to Christ daily, to speak truth in love. Don't presume we have more time. Consider Him in all things for he has certainly considered you. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for a time to share, and I thank you for a time to just come to you at night. Lord, though we are tired from our days, and though we 
we have to start this whole next week before us, Lord, I pray that we remind ourselves, Lord, that life is short. And Lord, if we seek you and to continue to know you, Lord, it should shape each one of our days to cling to Christ, to go to you, to pray and to seek you for our comfort and to give us peace. Lord, as we just end this night and we just end this time, Lord, may we just go loving one another, being ready to come back on next Sunday to share, Lord, the ways that you have grown us, the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. May all glory, honor go to you. Thank you for Christ, the cross, and for saving our sinful souls. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, just before we leave, just a few quick thoughts. Dan, excellent job. Um, listen, any sermon that makes a big deal out of Christ, that's a, that's a victory. That's a win in, in my book. Um, and you've got the makings of an excellent Baptist preacher. You're already using alliteration. Um, tremble, trust, and tell. I was really impressed by that. Well, well done. You're, you're better at that than I am. And I was going to say that was an extremely quotable sermon. If you start hearing some of these things pop up in my sermons, it's because I'm, I'm stealing them. Um, the end, consider him in all things because he has certainly considered you. I'm going to steal that. Um, the only chance we have to live life abundantly is to give that life up. I'm going to steal that as well. I'm going to steal up, steal a number of these things. Um, but, but I want you to be encouraged, Dan. Um, listen, it's hard to prepare sermons. It's, it's, it's hard work and intimidating to get up and preach and to, to explain God's word. Um, and so to get up and do that one of the first times I think you've ever really gotten up and, and preached um, you know, a text of scripture to a group of people. Um, listen, I could never have done that when I was 24 24. Yes, got it. Um, so, so be encouraged. Um, guys, listen, one of the best things, again, that we can do is to find young men that we're discipling and raising and training up. All right? that, that's what we need. Um, God, um, gifting men, bringing us men who, who are teaching, who are equipped to do those things and, and then grow and then lead us in, in the future. Um, so, so good work, Dan. Um, thank you guys for, for coming out. You, you, are, you are dismissed. The best thing about Dan maybe is that he's not nearly as long-winded as I am. So that is, that is a welcome that is a welcome respite um, for all of you, I am sure. Um, so, so thank you for coming out. Um, thank you, Dan, again for speaking. Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful evening. Um, hang around and chat. We'll, we'll still be here, and we'll, we'll see you guys next week. So you're dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>